Hello, I'm Michael Watson, joined by Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Frederick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, thinks schooling and school reform itself are due for a rethink. In his brief, less than 150 pages, excluding endnotes and acknowledgments, The Great School Rethink, Hess lays out his view on a new way to address the problems of American education, all informed by decades in the education policy field. Hess joins us today to discuss his Great School Rethink. Uh, Rick, before we begin, could you tell our listeners about your background and work with AEI? Sure. I'm Director of Education Policy Studies at AEI. Been there uh, a couple decades. Before that, I was a professor at the University of Virginia. Uh, Back once upon a time, I started out in this stuff as a high school social studies teacher in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Cool. Uh, So before we get into some of the details and some of the discussion, I just want to say that I think you know, I, I read the book uh, that if every superintendent, school board member and principal in the country read it, uh, we'd all be better off. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. So uh, why rethink? Uh, the classical model is, of course, school reform, education reform. We've heard about that for I mean, I've I've only been paying attention to politics and policy for about 20 years, and that includes time before I could vote. So <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um Look, we've been uh, re- trying to reform schools in America for hundreds of years. And to anybody who does this stuff, it feels like the bus starts when you get on. And so they think this is real reform. But look, I've been doing this stuff for better part of three decades. And most of that reform has been driven by West Coast foundations or, uh, you know, bureaucrats in Washington. Well, not, and, and not just uh, West yeah. Coast, also Waltons. <laughs> and you know so there's been there's been a big push to try change schools from on high and the the problem is that when pushed lots of parents and communities and educators have been like yeah you know the, these big um bombastic reform plans don't actually feel like they address the concerns we're raising i mean so i mean the, no one of the one of the big examples of that that our listeners might be familiar with was common core Common Core, No Child Left Behind, Obama's Race to the Top. Um, I think what's different about this moment is for the first time in my professional life, uh, the pandemic and the aftermath, you had millions of parents who said, wait a minute, I thought things were okay, and now I'm not so sure. Uh, Their trust in their schools has been shattered. They didn't like what they saw when they looked over their kid's shoulder um, when they were doing their Chromebook on the kitchen table. Um, In the aftermath of pandemic, they've been frustrated by policies as schools went back around masking and vaccination and then fights around gender ideology and critical race theory. And you've got educators who feel frustrated. They feel that they weren't prepared to deal with what happened during the pandemic, uh, that their, their schools are short-staffed, that, that they're in unsafe environments with lots of misbehavior and nobody's taking their concerns seriously. So for the first time in my professional life, I think we're actually seeing an appetite for reform coming from parents and educators and communities uh, rather than those of us uh, in positions of authority trying to cram reform down uh, down communities' throats. And I think that puts us potentially in a, in a very different place. So, so to use a crude analogy, whereas before there was a very open supply side of reform ideas, there was no demand. 
but now there's some demand. I think that's right. Uh, Sarah, you have any questions for Rick? Yes, I do. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, So I do not have the benefit of having read your book, but I did read Mike's review of your book. So I do have some questions. Um, I was struck and fascinated by what sounded like a sort of juncture between the way that schools are set up, the structure of the schools, and curriculum. So my question is, because it, the big question right now, given the you know debate about the Florida curriculum and other things, um, the trans ideology stuff that's, that's gotten into schools, is what should kids be learning first? And then when you look at what you talk about in the rethink, in the great rethink, um, you talk about how schools were structured sort of accidentally. They, they grew out of some accidental, some things that happened sort of accidentally. They were structured a certain way. I think summer break was one of the things that was discussed. So I'm wondering if there is a link to how they've been structured and how curriculum has changed and become something that I'm not so sure is useful to children. That's my first question, if you could give me your thoughts on that. And then the second question is, what should kids be taught in schools? What should the curriculum be? Sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, I mean, a really useful place to understand this is schools just weren't designed, American schools just weren't designed to do what we're asking them to do today. And this is one of the huge sources of frustration for parents, for educators, for policymakers. Look, um, the, the first public schools in America were started in the 1640s in Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, the problem was that they had too many kids who they thought were becoming witches. And so Massachusetts Bay Colony, in order to make sure kids weren't deluded by Satan, wanted to make sure they were literate and could read the Bible. So they passed a law, the Old Deluder Satan Act, which said if you have 50 I, I was, I was going to I was going to intervene if you didn't drop the name of the law. <laughs> <laughs> which said if you, if you have 50 families in a, in a town, you have to start a school, um, usually at the local church. And the school's job was to make sure kids could read so they want to become uh, witches. Uh, you know, in the 1830s, 1840s, the modern shape of American education was really launched by a guy named Horace Mann, who was the executive secretary of the Massachusetts Board of Ed. Uh, he had a problem. There were lots of Catholics moving into Massachusetts after the Irish potato famine from Southern Europe, from Eastern Europe. He was worried that these Catholics were going to threat to the Republic. So he wanted schools where these kids would learn to read the right Bible, the King James, so they would be less Catholic than their parents and would be good Americans. Now, the problem was that back then, teaching was a male profession. 90% of teachers were male, teachers that, which meant teachers were expensive, and men tended to only teach for a year or two and then go off and do something else. So in order to get cheap, predictable kind of teaching force, they feminized the teaching profession because they only had to pay women about half of what they were paying men. Mm-hmm. So you had a model here of which, what schools were being asked to do has nothing to do with what we want schools to do today that you had a workforce that worked from the 1840s till about the 1950s, when over half of college-educated women still became teachers. Um, it was a reasonable model. In a world where women who, you know, talented women could only be teachers or nurses, you didn't have to compete for talent or think about how do you attract and compensate great teachers. Problem is, from a school's perspective, that's no longer true. All those people who became teachers aren't. And when people come out of college, they don't do the same job for 30 years anymore. So we've got a teaching force that's built around a labor force that doesn't exist. 
So, Interesting. Then, so how does that affect curriculum? How, what has what has happened? So I, I hear what you're saying, that the, there were some social um, things that they were trying to address early on, um, some of them unsavory, as we discussed, <laughs> um, but at least they were learning how to read and things like that. Some of the curriculum today, they don't much care about these sort of useful skills. So how does, how does that labor force that doesn't exist and asking schools to do their structure to do things that they're not doing anymore, I guess, um, how does that translate into curriculum? How does that translate into the cultural fights we're having right now? Well, so there's a couple things. So one, schools just matter a lot more in terms of children's lives today than they did a century ago. Um, in 1900, four out of five Americans worked in farms or factories. You could have a third grade education and have a perfectly, perfectly good life. Today, if you don't have a functional education, you get locked out of good jobs. Uh, you're not equipped to engage in so much of the citizenship requires because so much of it's online and requires skills, uh, liter- online literacy and such. So that's one piece. Um, a second piece uh, is schools have always been fault lines uh, in American life. Uh, you know, German-Americans felt um, ridiculed and marginalized uh, during the uh, during the Red Scare after World War I. Uh, teachers were, were fired. Um, certainly there was a- an effort to, you know, aggressively drive out traditional American history starting in the 1960s and 1970s. So there have always been these battlegrounds. But I think what's happened today is in a social media environment, uh, in a really polarized country, uh, what's happened is instead of these fights being fought at local school boards um, or community by community, we can now see the craziness up close and, and, and virtual. And so what happens is even if uh, the fight, some of the crazy fights over whether or not kindergartners ought to be you know, spending time with a uh, gender unicorn. Um, Even if that's, you know, only one classroom out of a hundred, we see it and you see the videos and you see people defending it and you see the advocates making the case for it. And we don't really have a good sense if that's one classroom out of a hundred or if it's more common or less common, but all of us, because we're very impassionate about our schools and our kids tend to kind of, fear the worst. And so, so what this means for... Oh, no, con- oh, continue, uh, continue, and then I'll ask my question. Okay. Well, so what this means for curriculum is, y- you know, that we've actually, for instance, taught reading horribly for decades because ed school um, progressives have managed to capture the debate around how kids learn to read and have driven out basic truths we know about the science of reading, about how kids build phonemic awareness in the role of phonics. And for decades, you know, ed professors who just didn't like that stuff, it felt too directive and too teacher-centered, pushed us into ways of teaching reading that were bad for kids who weren't getting it at home. We actually see a really healthy pushback on that over the last five, six years with states moving the right direction. On the other hand, uh, when it comes to, say, civics or history instruction, I think it feels very much like like the fight's going the other way. Um, some truly ludicrous anti-historical stuff like the 1619 Project have wound up driving the conversation. So in some sense, uh, when we talk about curriculum, it's almost how are we, what are we talking about in terms of reading, in terms of what California is doing in math versus what more sensible states are doing versus broader, more worrisome trends around history or civics. 
So it sounds like what you're saying is that this is always, these kinds of fights have always been around. We just have more of a window to view them now because of social media. Um, so maybe don't panic. Don't panic, but be concerned. And certainly in America in 2023, uh, the ideological left, which owns the ed schools, um, is mobilized. Uh, it's a polarized nation. And they are absolutely um, pushing aggressively, say, with the new California math standards, uh, with some of what we're seeing with high school history instruction in the fight over advanced placement, African-American uh, studies. Uh, we absolutely see uh, some of the ideologues really spoiling to pick a fight. And one of the things that I think is healthy and reassuring about right now is it feels like conservatives have gotten off the mat. And for much of the 2010s, it felt like there was only one side in this fight. And now it feels like a much more of an equal contest. It's I, I appreciate that you have brought up the education schools because that got to what I thought was, you know, I read the book and I'm like, okay, now what do we do? You know, we have these established institutions you mentioned the ed schools. Uh, you know, I come from a labor policy background, so I immediately go to the teachers unions. Um, obviously, there are others, the uh, the liberal interest groups that, you know, the Planned Parenthood and, uh, uh, and they had the sort of Planned Parenthood extended universe of groups that are pushing radical gender ideology, uh, you know, sex ed at younger and younger ages. Um, with those powerful institutions very committed to not rethinking, very committed to uh, no, we quite like th- we quite like the way things are. Except we'd like you to give us another, you know, very large sum of money to do more of it. Uh, how do how what do we do? <laughs> yeah, so you know, one one of the you know, so the first thing we needed to do was get off the mat, like I just said. <laughs> one of the weird things about school reform and is for listeners who are under a certain age, uh, this won't be clear, but school reform was really bipartisan for a lot of like the Clinton and Bush era. Um, So No Child Left Behind, 90 votes in the U.S. Senate, 400 votes in the House. Um, Bush did it with Ted Kennedy. Um, It was that kind of, you know, pre-populist kind of um, bipartisanship that for many folks is where they worry conservatives went wrong uh, in that earlier era. But what what happened was there was a sense of bipartisanship about it. And as that unraveled during the Obama years, uh, during Common Core, what happened was the left got all of the all of the dishes. So all of the groups that had been supposedly bipartisan, Teach for America, uh, most famous among them, the charter school organizations, uh, outfits like KIPP, uh, they increasingly chose sides and they said, oh, yeah, we're on the left. And so what happened as we came out of this you saw that when it came to these education debates, most of the centers of authority and influence were already on the left, the unions or the, you know, the the alphabet soup, and then also these new reform groups. So the first most important thing that happened was conservatives started to wake up and say, whoa, wait a minute. You mean we've been backing Teach for America and these guys all this time? And it turns out not only are they not even neutral, they're actually on the other side. The second thing that's happened, though, is we started to see that vacuum filled. Uh, the most important uh, outfit feeling that vacuum is Moms for Liberty, mm-hmm. which is, I think, one of the reasons why you've seen them take such intense fire from the New York Times NPR set. SPLC. They, they represent a real threat. Um, you know, at AEI, for instance, we've started an outfit called Conservative Education Reform Network, 
which works more with kind of ed policy professionals, outfits like Heritage, uh, American Federation for Children, uh, Ed Choice. There's a number of these organizations that each, I think, in their own way, has been extending their reach and mobilizing. Parents Defending Education uh, is a hugely important one. And so I think that's part of the answer is what we need is an infrastructure on the right that allows us to engage at the school board and the state legislature. So, so the, the sort of organizing that has occurred in the post-lockdown era, you know, that, that you would say is step one. That has to be step one, because but, otherwise we're in a game where, uh, you know, there, there are powerful organized interests like the unions, like some of these other entities on the left. And if all we've got is a handful of advocates and eggheads are running around on the right, you know, that, 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 that's, a, that's a ridiculous fight. Yeah. And I think this, the opportunity obviously is ripe because of what happened with COVID. This, and you, I think you write about this in the book, if Mike's review is accurate, <laughs> um, uh, that, you know, the school choice movement kind of, and, and it works perfectly with the fact that, as you said, the structure of schooling, of education in the United States um, sort of grew sort of accidentally out of some some things. And it was never sort of written down in stone that this is the way things should be. So the school choice movement, this seems like the perfect opportunity to kind of rethink that stuff. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, you, you know, as somebody who has been supportive and involved in the school choice fights for three decades, um, you know, one of my frustrations, I think the school choice movement has long shot itself in the foot. Um, th- there's been this notion, right? School Schooling is a bundle of choices. Everything about schools is choices. Um, how much homework to give? What kind of discipline policy? What classes the kids take? And the fact that a school has a bundle of choices that don't work for a, a child just makes a lot of sense to give that pa- fa- family the right to move the kid to a school that makes better choices. And one, we've allowed the opponents to make it sound like school choice is some really novel, unusual thing. It's not. The second thing, though, is school choice, made, the school choice advocates back in the 90s made the strategic decision that they were going to sell school choice as Medicaid. Um, in order to like defang resistance and make it less threatening, they said this is just for kids trapped in terrible poverty stricken well, unsafe schools. Wasn't that also court. because in the pre-COVID era, the sort of stereotypical suburban mom and dad really liked their public school and everything seemed like it was really good? Well, they still, that's right. And they, and they still do. It's funny. I mean, even post-COVID, 75% of uh, public school parents give their kids school in A or B. So, but what happened was, so we wound up with this fight where we said, well, we're going to, we're going to make this about choice versus public schools and the place we can do that and minimize blowback is in the urban core. And what happened during the pandemic was suddenly lots of parents said, well, I like my local school. It's where I go. We go to football games on Friday night and it's where I've met my neighbors, but I don't trust it the same way I used to. Mm -hmm. And I want more options now. And so suddenly um, choice advocates have gotten in the habit of talking not about choice as Medicaid, Medicare, excuse me, as Medicaid, but as Medicare. This is something for everybody. It's Social Security. Like you don't need to want out of your school, but you should have the option. And they've been talking about education savings accounts, which say maybe you just want choices. You like your school, but you don't like the long term sub teaching algebra or you don't like what they're doing under the guise of U.S. history. You want the option to plug into one of those online courses 
that the school told you you had to use during <laughs> during the shutdowns. And so what's happened is suddenly, instead of being something that just helps 20 or 25 percent of families, the least the, the least influential and most marginalized, now suddenly choice has become something that speaks to millions and millions more parents. And some and something that and isn't an, that that isn't an either or choice between the the local public school that you at least historically and probably still do like or unknown private situation yeah you know Amer- americans right ra- radicals tend not to do well in america you know you you start saying we want to train police better you can get a whole lot of you know conservatives to say well that sounds right i'm worried about police violating people's rights you start talking about defund the police and you can't even get you know, a lot of Democrats to go along. You know, when we say, look, it's fine to like your public schools, but we should also empower parents. That works with huge numbers of people. The problem is the folks who've been advocates, who get hung up on really fun online memes and sharp Twitter jabs have been spending so much time saying, you've got to pick choice or public schools that they wound up putting themselves in a hole that they didn't need to put themselves in. Social media media giveth and social media taketh away. <laughs> um, so I guess I have sort of one one final question. You know, if, if school choice, uh, this sort of broader choice movement, I know you mentioned in the book about like choice within a public school of like course, course choice and and that sort of thing. You know, how do we battle the bureaucracies that are institu- that are instituting things like you mentioned California's math standards. Uh, you know, New York State has the culturally responsive sustaining education framework. Um, and again, maybe this is more of a, you know, those of us who are stuck in a blue state problem. Uh, but like, how, you know, how do we we advance there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's absolutely a state by state dynamic here. Um, there's a reason that we've seen this explosion of universal vouchers and education savings accounts in red states, um, while the bluest of states, Illinois, you know, is going the other direction, for instance. Um, so that's but there's there's at least three things that we need to do. One is we just need to make this stuff transparent. Like I said, um, some of these trends that have exploded into public consciousness over the last three or four years. You could see them unfolding over the past 10 or 12 years in public education, and you could trace some of them back decades. Um, but because there wasn't, uh, because there, you know, because the powers that tend to be influential in education reform were okay uh, with uh, the increased reach of anti-racist education, um, because they believed uh, in a lot of the predicates of, you know, gender ideology, they weren't raising any alarms about this. And so this stuff was happening under the radar. So the first and most important thing, um, especially in blue states, is just to wake people up to these things. Because if you look at the polling, it turns out that most parents are uncomfortable with the crazy kooky stuff, mm-hmm. as they should be. Um, I have a, second, I have a, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I interrupted you. Oh, no, that's right. Um, second, I think there's, you know, there's the question then about engaging legislatively um, at school boards in legislatures and governor's office, uh, where the political environment is conducive. So, for instance, Glenn Youngkin was able to roll a lot back in a purple state like Virginia 
just because once people saw what was going on, they said, oh, yeah, this stuff makes sense. Uh, DeSantis has obviously shown how far you can push this stuff in Florida, Abbott in Texas. Um, now, there, that doesn't work in California or New York, but, but, but it's crucial to kind of use those levers where they apply. And then the third is, is not to imagine um, that the bureaucracy um, is a given. So when we talk, for instance, about I talk in the book about charter teachers, uh, letting teachers operate like psychiatrists, uh, let them do revenue sharing deals with districts. Um, a lot of these teachers don't necessarily buy into the goofiness that the DEI coordinator in a district is doing. And so if we give that teacher room to run, um, suddenly you have narrowed the reach uh, of that bureaucracy. Um, over half of parents say in the Ed Choice and monthly polling that they would like to have their kid home at least one day a week because those parents who are fortunate enough to have that kind of schedule like having some of that interaction with their kid and seeing what's going on. If a kid is working from home and the parent's looking over their shoulder pretty regularly one day a week, that is going to be a powerful check on what's going on in classrooms or what school districts are kind of. So there are ways. As, 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 I, as I point out to just yeah. about every education person who come who we have on, you know, all of this, you know, blew up because parents were forced to watch, you know, proctor the the mandatory lockdown learning for their kids you know, and if they want to stay, if they want to stay involved, at least in a partial sense in that way, that is a deterrent. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I have a question and it'll be my final question. Um, but, but so it sounds like you would agree with the idea that funding students uh, and not schools is maybe at least partially the way to go. I mean, I have a pretty radical idea about the Department of Education myself. I mean, I kind of think that the states should just get that funding and be able to kind of disperse it as they need to. Um, and that it doesn't need to come from the federal government. Um, I, I think that's pretty radical. I don't know that anyone would agree with that. But what do you think of um, just, you know, funding students, letting states kind of administer their educate their public education? Yeah, I mean, that right. I mean, that's the logic of an education savings account that we pay these taxes. Uh, you know, um, John Stuart Mill wrote about this a very long time ago, that the state's interest is making sure that we have educated citizens uh, who are up to the, you know, who are equal to the requirements. Uh, but it has no real interest or it should have no real interest in how we get there. So, look, we spend, we, we invest tax dollars in education to educate children. Um, if some providers are doing a lousy job of that, it's hard to imagine why we should funnel tons of dollars into those. New York City spends $38,000 per pupil per year right now. Um, the idea that this is the best way for New York taxpayers uh, to invest the funds to educate those children, um, it's hard for me to hard for me to find that convincing. So sure, I think the dollars ought to go where the kids go. Um, there are questions about how do we make sure that these do- you know what we saw during the COVID, um, the fraudulent collection of federal uh, unemployment, uh, the games that were played with stuff like paycheck protection. So obviously we need good auditing. Obviously we need uh, good anti fraud uh, mechanisms in place. Obviously, there needs to be um, processes to protect public dollars uh, and to make sure folks aren't getting ripped off and kids aren't getting cheated. Uh, but, but, but there's no earthly reason that we need to send money to dysfunctional schools in order for that to be the case. All right. Well, uh, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to promote either that you're doing or that your AI colleagues are doing? Um, you know, uh, I, we've, we've got a bunch of great people. Um, 
Beth, Beth, uh, Beth Akers and Mike Brickman are doing great work on what's going on with crazy stuff in terms of uh, student loans, even after the court struck down uh, Biden's illegal uh, forgiveness ploy. Uh, my colleague Nat Malkus and Max Eden uh, are keeping a close eye on K-12 in terms of both some of these culture issues and uh, the aftershocks of the pandemic. Um, I'd encourage uh, you know anybody to come by and check it out. Um, I think we've got valuable stuff to contribute. All right. Well, thanks again to Rick Hess of the American Enterprise Institute for joining us. We will include a link to the Great School Rethinks page at AEI in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. 